Hey guys, Trace here, and welcome back to Seeker Plus. Today, we're going to rebroadcast episode 82, where we talk all things stars. We're going to talk more about where they come from, how they form, how we classify them, and so much more. It's going to be stellar. So let's get right to it. You can literally see stars 100% of the time, day and night. I mean, sure, there are more at night, but you can see them all the time. They're always there. A star is, well, it's a giant mass of incandescent gas. It's a gigantic nuclear furnace. I don't know if you're a big fan of, they might be giants, but you should be because they're very educational. A star is a sphere of superheated glowing gas, and there's obviously more to it than that. For a detailed description of star formation, buckle up, because we're going to go there. Stars produce light and energy from nuclear fusion. Nuclear fusion happens when two light elements are smooshed together and then they become a heavier element. About 75% of the matter in the universe is hydrogen. 23% of it is helium. So most of the universe is made of those two things, 75 and 23. I mean, that's a lot of stuff. There are, of course, other heavier elements scattered throughout the rest of the universe. But those two specifically are extremely ubiquitous elements in the universe, and they are the basic components of stars. Gravity is what makes these elements fuse together. And it only works when there's a lot of it, because the elements are going to naturally not want to fuse, you know. Two hydrogen atoms are both positively charged, potentially, and they're not going to want to smoosh into each other. You need a lot of gravity to overcome that repulsion so that they can mush. Stars form in what is called an interstellar medium, or ISM. ISM is just fancy talk for molecular clouds. Molecular meaning atoms that are bound together, and these molecular clouds are often called dark nebulae. The conditions for star formation in the ISMs are perfect because there's a lot of hydrogen, there's some helium, and there's a few other heavier elements, and they all coalesce into super dense regions of gas. Molecular clouds, for the most part, find stability after long periods of time floating around out in space until something acts upon them, right? A nearby supernova, maybe? A galactic collision that sends waves of energy out into the universe? Potentially something else with lots of energy shakes things up. When that happens, that energy is imparted into this ISM cloud, and then things get crazy. The events cause a gravitational disturbance, which makes the cloud begin to collapse on itself. It throws off that balance. And once the balance is thrown off, things start happening, I'm going to say really fast, but really fast in a galactic way. Stars don't form in like five minutes. It takes a lot longer than that. They collapse on themselves because the force of gravity is pulling them in. As these particles get closer together, atom by atom, molecule by molecule, they're increasing in density and pressure. And that means more mass. More mass means more gravity, which means this process slowly accelerates. And as that happens, things start to get really complicated really fast. The nice thing about gases is we have something called the ideal gas law, which tells you that the temperature, the volume, and the pressure are all related along a gas constant, as well as how much of the stuff, how much mass there actually is. That can all be related. It's super awesome and mind-blowing, and it gets more and more complicated as there is more and more and more mass. But it still balances within the ideal gas law equation. Super cool. You can actually look up the math of that. We'll put a link down in the description for this really awesome uh, paper from University of Colorado 
that we found. It's really, really great. I can't really wrap my mind around all of the math while we're doing it because it's a three-dimensional sphere of mass that's slowly falling in on itself, increasing in temperature and pressure while also simultaneously increasing in mass, but the pressure is also pushing out on it and the temperature is going up, which makes the gas more excited, which makes it want to expand further. It gets really complicated, as you can probably guess. But now we're getting somewhere, right? All of this gas over time has slowly begun to coalesce and get more and more dense and warmer, and it's the beginning of a star. Basically how our star formed and how every star formed that you can see in the night sky. We could stop here and say, okay, and then once it collapses onto itself, it becomes a star. But come on, man, there's so much more happening. The cloud's gravitational potential energy turns into kinetic energy. That way, the individual gas particles within the cloud are turning into kinetic and then thermal energy as they crash into one another and create all of this chaos. The cloud starts to heat up. That kinetic energy is also manifested into the cloud's spin the spinning of the cloud begins. We've seen this before in our formation series. Everything in the universe is spinning. But think of an ice skater that pulls in their extremities. Or if you are in a uh, rotating chair at your office right now, maybe, uh, spin and then tuck in your arms. You will speed up. That's how this works, too. This is called the conservation of angular momentum, in case you someone asks you what you're doing. Just say, I'm conserving angular momentum. So as it spins the gases also begin to flatten out, creating an accretion disk, and then that continues to collapse on itself for a long, long time. A long, long, long time. Like, a long time. (laughs) Stars are big, and they are full of gas. The smallest of these star-forming nebulae that we mentioned earlier are about three light years across. Inside of something that size, you'd have about 2,000 solar masses. Now, if you look at something like our star, it formed in one of these stellar furnaces, these little nebulae as well. And the sun has a radius of 700,000 kilometers. So it's 1.4 million kilometers across. One light year is about nine and a half trillion kilometers. So by the time something three light years across coalesces into 2,000 or so stars of our size, that's really, really dense stuff. I mean, we're talking point zero 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 one five light years across. Eventually, the star begins to form at the center of that accretion disk. But it isn't a star yet. Not quite. It continues to form until the collapse starts to slow down. And that is the pressure acting on the coalescing molecules. It hits a point where it's too dense to keep collapsing, but is able to compete with the gravity, the mass. You know, the temperature and pressure are pushing outward as the gravity is pushing inward. And together, they slowly begin to balance. That coalesced gas cloud becomes what we call a protostar, although it's still not quite a star. Protostars are not quite stars yet. They're still amateur stars. Once nuclear fusion starts, then we can call it a star. And that will only happen if there was enough gas and enough pressure and enough gravity and enough heat and enough energy to smush those hydrogen atoms together and overcome their repulsion. Once that happens... It kicks off and becomes a star. The whole process we've been talking about, by the way, is called gravitational contraction. It's a gas cloud collapsing on itself due to gravity. When the pressure within the star causes that temperature in the middle of it to reach 10 million degrees Kelvin, then remember that ideal gas law, the hydrogen gets to be helium. And once that happens, an equilibrium between the pressure pushing out, the explosive energy of that fusion, matches the gravity pushing it in 
we get a star. Now, after all that, some stars never start their fusion. And some stars start fusion so violently, and they don't have enough gravity, that they explode themselves. You know, you just end up with a pop. And then they might end up forming other stars. I mean, it's, it's a super interesting process, and it's happening constantly. It's super cool. I mean, I guess technically it's super hot, but it's super neat. <laughs> Whatever. There are a lot of different types of stars, though. Don't just go around thinking there's just one type of star. That's starist. Hashtag not all stars. There's a lot of different ways to classify stars. But mostly it comes down to two different things. their spectra and their surface temperature. Spectra is the elements that they're absorbing, but we'll get more to that in a minute. There are seven main types of stars. From the hottest to the coldest, or decreasing in temperature, we've got O stars, that's around 25,000 degrees Kelvin. B stars are between 11 and 25. A stars are between 7,500 degrees Kelvin and 11,000. F are 6,000 to 7,500. G are 5,000 to 6,000. K are 3,500 to 5,000. And M is anything colder than 3,500 degrees Kelvin. So we've got, in descending order, O-B-A-F-G-K-M. Super easy. Say it out loud. You can remember it. There's also a mnemonic that they use called, Oh, be a fine girl and kiss me. Or guy. It's 21st century. But I think that's a terrible mnemonic. I think you'll probably agree. Oh, be a fine girl and kiss me. Come on. How about uh, Obama bit a friend's gorgonzola? Crazy, man. Crazy with a K. I don't know. That wasn't that good. Okay, I can do better. Occupational bathrobes are fairly great for kelp men. Okay, those were both bad. Tweet me your favorite mnemonic. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Trace Dominguez. You can find the show at DNews. So O, B, and A stars, those are blue stars. F stars range from blue to white. G range from white to yellow. And K are from orange to red. M stars, or the coolest ones, are red. So just to kind of put it in perspective... A bluer star is going to be a hot star. A red star is going to be a cold star. And the white and yellow and orange stars, they're kind of in the middle, right? So our star, if you think about it, is a white star. So it's kind of average. It's a, you know, average star. So to differentiate the stars, astronomers look at what are called spectral lines. Essentially, it's a fingerprint looking for the atoms and elements and molecules floating around inside of that giant nuclear furnace. There are two types of spectral lines that we can look at. There's the emission lines, which are lines that appear as discrete colored lines, and they correspond with wavelengths emitted by an object. So think colored lines on a black background. You know, maybe there's a red and a blue and a green. And then there are absorption lines, which appear as dark bands resulting from wavelengths that are absorbed along the line of sight. So think black lines on a colored background. So the idea is these two things help us identify what's going on inside of a star. Let me give you an example. I know this is complicated. Stars didn't actually, like, make it easy on us. O stars have singly ionized helium lines, either in emission or absorption. Singly ionized helium is an atom that has lost one of its electrons. So a helium atom without an electron, it acts more like hydrogen. It still has two protons in its nucleus, though, B stars have neutral helium lines in their absorption. A stars have hydrogen lines. F stars have metallic lines because the cooler ones uh, usually have burned a lot of things and mushed a lot of stuff together. M stars, for example, have bands of titanium oxide because they have a lot of very dense stuff inside of them. That's why they can't burn as hot. Hydrogen can burn a lot hotter, and helium can burn a lot hotter. So either way, 
I hope you're still with me. These are kind of confusing. There's a lot of different ways to categorize these things. Because those letters are not quite enough to categorize every star, stellar scientists also have subclasses that range from zero to nine. And they will combine the letter and the number. So a star that was halfway between an F0 and a G0 would be an F5. So you might have an F star, which is, as you may recall, a star that's a bluish-whitish star ranging from 6,000 to 7,500 degrees Kelvin. A G star is a whiter, yellower star, and it's a little cooler, ranging from 5 to 6,000 degrees Kelvin. So if you have an F5, then you have one that's in the middle of those two things. You know, it's a little, little whitish, it's a little cooler than its other more bluish F stars, and it's an F5. So that way you can kind of break it down. Another example to kind of hit it home for you is the G star, five to 6,000 degrees Kelvin. It's a whitish, yellowish star. Our star is a G2. So it's on the cooler side of the G spectrum and it's more yellow than it is white. That's not the only classification that we have for stars though because science likes to be as specific as possible and make things as complicated as it can. So then you have luminosity. Luminosity is the amount of energy being given out by a star, you know, the amount of light, if you will. And we classify those using what's called the Yerkes classification, or MMK, based on the initials of the authors. And this scheme measures the shape and the surface gravity of stars. So from that we get 1A, which are most luminous, usually supergiants, 1B, less luminous supergiants, 2s, which are luminous giants, all the way down to like main sequence stars, which are 5s, and dwarf stars, and so on and so forth. The reason they call them main sequence is that they make up about 90% of all of the stars. Our star, a little more specific still, G2V. So our star is a main sequence type star, or dwarf star, that's in the middle of the road temperature-wise. Not super white, a little bit yellow, kind of on the cooler side, G2V. But hold that thought, because... I have to tell you about these socks that I'm wearing right now. They're awesome. They're called Bombas, and they're the most comfortable socks in the history of feet with arch support systems that provide extra support where you need it most and a cushioned footbed that's reinforced for comfort without the added bulkiness. These Bombas feel like a hug around my foot. All of my other socks just don't seem good enough now. Go to bombas.com slash seeker, use the code seeker, and you'll get 20% off your first order of Bomba socks. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash seeker, code seeker. Get 20% off your first order. So now we know how stars formed, and we wanted to know where the first stars to coalesce in the universe came from, as far as we know. And then we want to figure out how long they live and what that life cycle is like. We all know that the Big Bang happened 13.7-ish billion years ago, And for the first few hundred million years, the universe was just too hot for stars to form. There's too much going on. They had to wait until things cooled down a bit. Gravity started pulling together hydrogen and helium into the first ever stars. And using all of those different laws and, you know, physics that we talked about earlier, if you haven't watched the last episode, go back and watch that because it'll make a lot of this stuff make sense. But once that started happening, stars began to form. A 2008 supercomputer simulation, detailed in the journal Science, showed how dark matter gave us the first gravitational force, essentially. Uh, We aren't going to get into that too much, but it showed that the first protostar had about a 1% mass in comparison to our sun. So it was 99% smaller. Then, a mere 10,000 years later, it had 100 solar masses, 
Previous estimations thought that these early stars could have been a thousand solar masses. You know, this is like when you look back in life and you got these giant animals and today we have these smaller animals. Things were huge in the early parts of the universe. But a study published in the same journal, Science, only a few years later proposed a different theory. According to the study lead and astronomer at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, it's a NASA laboratory run by Caltech in Pasadena, Takahashi Hosokawa, the first stars were definitely massive, but not to the extreme that we thought before. Our simulations reveal that the growth of these stars is stunted earlier than expected, resulting in similar sizes to what we would find today. Only around 10 solar masses, not 100 or 1,000 as previously thought. The reasons we thought that these early stars were so big was because stars come from these collapsing clouds of helium and hydrogen. Remember, we mentioned this earlier, and there are trace amounts of heavier elements in the universe that contribute to these star formations. Remember that, because that's very important. Put a pin in that. Heavier elements, very important. Because for a star like our sun, you need heavy elements like carbon. It helps keep the collapsing gas cool enough so it doesn't expand too much. The star doesn't blow itself out. So basically, if the heavier elements weren't there, the star would expand to these massive sizes. And that was exactly the case in the early universe. Those heavier elements weren't there yet. So the stars got bigger. But this new simulation showed that the old simulations were a little inaccurate. They were saying thousands of times. The new simulations were saying, eh, it's really more like tens or whatever. Not that big. In the early universe, the first generation of stars... Today, we call population three stars. Astronomers believe these lived very short, violent lives, lasting only about a million years until they exploded into supernovas or supernovae. In that short million years, the heavier elements that you needed to make the stars that we have today were actually created in their cores. So these stars were fast, crazy rock and roll stars blowing themselves out after only a million years. But in doing so, they were fusing lots of hydrogen and helium together in order to make heavier and heavier and heavier elements. Once those elements existed in the universe, other stars could grab onto them to make themselves a little cooler, like we just mentioned. Eventually, those stars became stable. They lasted longer, got into middle age, you know, bought a minivan, kind of calmed down a bit. So that's population three stars, rock and roll stars. They didn't have very much metal, ironically, uh, and they were the oldest. They were the first stars. But according to the Center for Astrophysics and Supercomputing in Swinburne, population three stars, they're just hypothetical. We can't really observe them because they're not around. And there are a few theories as to why. One thought is that population three stars would have swept through the universe, and as they collected metals, they would now appear as what we call population two stars. But the most reasonable idea is that it's just been too long. There aren't any left. We would only be able to see what's left over from population three stars' deaths if we look way out into the universe. Because the further away you look, the further back in time you're looking because speed of light is constant. So if you're looking at a star that's so many light years away, say 10 billion light years away, the light is just getting to you now, but it was emitted from that star 10 billion years ago. So that's why they say they're looking back in time the further away they look. Maybe we just need better telescopes or something else to try and figure out how to see 13 billion years back in time, right? Then we can see those early population three stars. 
But today we've got population two stars. They've got some metal in them. They're still known as metal poor. Then there's population one stars. They've got a lot of metal in them. Uh, They're younger. They've only formed in the last million to 100 million years, which in the age of the universe is kind of insane that we are seeing some of these very new stars. They're basically freaking babies. But these are the different types. You know, you got the rock star stars, you got the minivan stars, and then you got the old people that are full of metal. It's kind of weird to think about, but it's true. So stars last a long time, but it depends on the mass of the star how their life cycle in a population two star is going to go. When a collapsed molecular cloud isn't large enough and nuclear fusion doesn't happen at its core, we get a star called a brown dwarf. They're too large to be planets, too small to be stars, and nuclear fusion isn't there. They're not hot enough. Brown dwarfs don't shine. They're not actually brown either. It's more of a color between red and black, but we're not going to get into that because that's kind of weird. But brown dwarfs, it's kind of like a big star-like thing. But when nuclear fusion is triggered, like we mentioned earlier, previous episode, you get main sequence stars. Stars with higher masses and more material, and they will last longer because they have more to burn, right? That's not actually true. That's wrong. They actually burn through that material faster since its core temperature is significantly hotter, which is kind of crazy to think about, right? Our star is going to last about 10 billion years. But a star 10 times the size of our sun wouldn't last 10 times as long because it's bigger. It would actually only last around 20 million years, really short amount of time. The bigger they are, the Harder they fall. Eventually, everything is going to die, even stars. So now that you know how they're born and how to pull them together into different types over the life cycle of our universe, let's talk about how stars die and what happens to them. Once a star has burned through its nuclear fusion and its nuclear fuel, it dies. But that's not the end for all stars. When a main-sequence star burns through all of the hydrogen in its core— It's time for the star to die. But don't feel bad, because unlike humans that get buried forever, stars are never really gone. Depending on the mass of the star, it could collapse into a black hole. It could turn into a white dwarf. It could turn into a giant star for a little while before something else happens to it. Stars are basically superheroes that only get power when they die. That's how I feel about it. So stars significantly smaller than the size of our own sun, say a quarter of the size, they will collapse into a white dwarf so that they no longer have nuclear fusion happening at the core. They're still radiating heat, though, and they're still shining. It's theorized that white dwarves will eventually cool into what's called a black dwarf. But the universe isn't actually old enough for any of the white dwarves that we know to exist to actually cool into a black dwarf. It's never happened that we could tell, so hence still theorized, which actually kind of blows my mind that The universe just isn't old enough. We're too young for that. Larger stars roughly the size of our sun, they turn into red giants usually. Basically, their outer layers, they get pulled into the core of the star, and that makes the temperature of nuclear fusion increase. Helium begins to fuse with carbon, and the core becomes extremely unstable, and thus everything gets a little bit bigger. And by a little bit, I mean a lot. I mean, they do call it a red giant. If our sun were to become a red giant, which is part of its fate, it would expand so much that it would engulf many of the inner planets. It might even reach ours. Essentially, we'd be orbiting right at the edge of the sun if it didn't reach us anyway, because Mercury and Venus would be gone. They'd be inside of our sun. Pretty much, they've used all the energy they can from their nuclear fuel, and they have no way of supporting all of the mass that they have. So instead... They explode instead of expanding. They explode in what's called a supernova. 
A nova is when a star's surface explodes. A supernova is when the star's core collapses and then explodes. It's way more violent. It pretty much ends the star. (laughs) In a matter of seconds, the iron core inside the star goes from around 5,000 miles across to about 12,000. The temperatures jump to 100 billion degrees or more, which is actually really, really hot. And if the core of the star that explodes via supernova is between one and a half and three times the size of our star, then we get a neutron star. This is so dense that electrons and protons actually become neutrons. They collapse into themselves. It's a crazy amount of mass and gravity and pressure. If you took a teaspoon of neutron star stuff, it's the densest thing in the universe. Just a teaspoon of it would weigh 10 million tons. The gravitational field to escape that teaspoon would be about 0.4 times the speed of light. I mean, that's pretty impressive. The gravity of a neutron star is about 2 billion times stronger than Earth's. When two neutron stars collide, they actually form a black hole in milliseconds. It just happens because they're so dense. Remember that news about gravitational waves a little while back that LIGO found? We get those from something huge happening out in the universe, something like colliding neutron stars or colliding black holes. It's pretty impressive stuff. We can actually see neutron stars here on Earth. You may have heard the term pulsars. It's a rotating star. Uh, We can get into the specifics of it in another series if you want us to let us know in the comments. But pulsars are a rotating star that's kind of like a lighthouse out in the universe. They're usually very regular. And that is essentially a neutron star. When the core of a collapsed star is larger than that three solar mass, uh, things get really dark. Now, I think you can imagine you can make a black hole if you have a really, really massive star. We can't actually observe black holes directly, but we can see their effects out in the galaxy, out in the universe. Black holes are awesome. We just did a series on them a while back. You can check that out. Myself, Dr. Ian O'Neill, astrophysicist. We got really sucked in. We were just falling all over the place, trying to talk about black holes. Couldn't understand the gravity of the situation, you know. Started talking, time lost all meaning. It was a bunch of black hole puns. You might get them if you watch the series. Anyway, go back and check it out. There are two types of supernovae that can happen when a star does explode. So if it doesn't make a black hole, it doesn't make a neutron star, and it instead just explodes, right, in the most spectacular fashion, we have to classify that because science. There's a type 1, which has an A, B, and C. Then there's a type 2. Type 2 is what we've been mostly talking about so far. A star runs out of hydrogen and then helium and then boom. Type 1, that's a little different. These supernovae happen in binary star systems where there's more than one star and they're orbiting each other. Although for this to happen with binary star systems is actually pretty rare. Binary stars themselves are pretty common. About half the stars in the night sky are some kind of binary system. But a binary star system, uh, they rotate around a common center of mass. But basically, one star is a white dwarf and the other type of star is a red giant or a main sequence star or maybe another white dwarf. But one of the stars in the pair ends up pulling matter from its buddy until its own core reaches some kind of critical density and explodes. The difference between type 1a, 1b, and 1c come down to the lines in their spectra. If you don't remember what spectra is, go back earlier. We talked about it already. 1a means the supernova has strong silicon lines. 1b has helium lines. And 1c is if they don't have helium lines. Actually, can get pretty confusing after that. From supernovae, heavier elements are then shot out into the universe, which is important. Maybe you remember from earlier, Population 3 stars, those 
live fast, die young, early universe stars, the rock star stars, they didn't have any metal. And then we slowly got more metal, and that's how we could make main sequence stars like we have. This is how that happened. The supernovae explode, and they throw that metal out into the universe so that other stars can encapsulate it and grab it and turn themselves into regular, you know, middle-of-the-road minivan stars. Supernovae are thought of as rare, but they're actually pretty common in cosmological terms. There's one about every 50 years or so. So in a galaxy the size of ours, we're going to see them all the time. In 2008, scientists saw a supernova in the act of exploding for the first time. It was the first time we'd ever captured one. Astronomer Alicia Stoderberg and her colleague were the first people to witness it. They named it SN2008D. I think they could have come up with a cooler name, you know, first supernova ever. What do you want to call it? How about the year and the letter D? Science can sometimes use a little imagination. Stars are all unique. They're kind of like people. You know, you get some stars that live this way, some stars that live that way. Some stars live in pairs. Some stars, you know, have different life cycles than other stars. There's even mysteries and murders out in the, in the star world. We've talked about it a little bit so far. Christopher Kachanek, a professor of astronomy and eminent scholar at Ohio State, used the Large Binocular Telescope, LBT, and the Hubble Space Telescope to look at a star named N6946-BH1. It's 25 times the mass of our sun. It's located 20 million light years away. It's a red supergiant. So they're watching this star, and the star disappeared. It didn't go supernova. It didn't nova. It didn't turn into anything else that they know of. The quote from their paper was a brief, intense flare-up where it became a million times brighter than the sun, then steadily faded away. They think it might be a black hole now, but they can't actually see it. They have to watch the gas and dust around the star to see if it starts falling toward what they assume is a black hole. Time's going to tell. But this confirms some theories about how stars don't have to explode to become black holes. They can just collapse onto themselves. NASA's WISE satellite, which is Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer, picked up a lot of data on what's called a stellar tidal disruption. It's an enormous amount of energy released out into the universe. It brightens everything around it. There's x-rays, there's ultraviolet, there's infrared, there's optical. And they're studying several of these different events. And they realize that what happens is the flares were something that happens when black holes eat happy little stars. The stars are wandering around the galaxy and they get too close to a black hole and they get eaten. This happens when the star goes past the Roche limit, where gravity gets too much and the star gets pulled apart. Essentially, it gets spaghettified, where it's squeezed into a giant line of gas and dust, and that's just its molecules, and then it's just its atoms, and then it's just parts of atoms until it's inside of the singularity, and that's that. But just like with the other one, using the dust left behind, scientists can determine where these stars that have been murdered or disappeared, what happened to them. They look at the dust around that explosion or that flare, they call it a light echo. They look at how the optical light reaches us and the infrared light reaches us. And when they look at the difference between the two, they can tell how far the black hole is from that tidal disruption. Super cool, right? Stars are kind of amazing. I mean, they're born in stellar nurseries. They live this unique and interesting life. They're all a little different. Some have planets. Some have twins, some don't have planets, some are binary, some live really quick, fast, hot lives, and some never really make it, you know? Some flame out spectacularly, some just disappear, some drag everything down around them. It's pretty cool, right? 
stars are kind of like people. Hopefully you'll uh, look up and see them a little differently this time. They're all individuals. This episode was written by Blair Battenberg and Trace Dominguez. It was edited by Braith Miller and Blair Battenberg, and it was shot by Ciara Williams. And, of course, we can't not mention our superstar intern, Denisha Calderon. Thanks so much, everyone, and we'll see you next time.